of the DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. Man, lift I cease pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My right eye scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020 vision. How you doing, Dave? Doing well. Can't believe that Thanksgiving is next Thursday. Crazy. It's come up quickly. Yeah. Well, Thanksgiving always means uh, the end of our birthday cycle. So our middle daughter, Sarah, will be 10 on Sunday this year. Sometimes it's Thanksgiving Day, but this this year it's a couple of days after. Uh, but it's always an exciting uh, conclusion. We have a, a August, a September, an early November, and then a late November. So all four kids we hit in about a three-month span there, and a lot of anticipation about birthday lists and birthday meals and parties and all the rest. So it's 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 good to get through that season, uh, and of course, Christmas right behind it. Well, we have the opposite problem. We ha- we have them, our two youngest, uh, Jack and Eliza, circled around Christmas, one uh, ten days before and one eight days after, and. Given the nature of kids, a lot of discussion as to whose birthdays best, who got more with <laughs> right. Christmas sandwiched in. So, yeah, it's always a lot of fun. I think it's driven my wife to the point where she's just like, let's just go on one big family vacation and call it a day on birthdays, right. Christmas, right. et cetera. So, so solve the problem. You could probably get away yeah. with that when they're a little older. I'm not sure at this stage if you can pull that off. They're getting older, but boy, it's eight and 10 this year for them. Yeah, so. yeah it's amazing. So well, Patriots continue to roll. Yeah, and, and actually we're recording on Thursday, so uh, next game is tonight uh, against against the Falcons, which uh, looks promising. I think it's fair to say. What's what's your thought about tonight's game? It'd be a, one of those games where it may be closer than than you'd like. I hope not. I I think uh, one of the good things about the way they've been playing is their defense is so strong, and yeah, defense in football can carry out a kind of consistent set of victories. Your offense will come and go, a lot like other sports, but. If you have a good defense, you've got a pretty good shot of of stringing together a whole bunch of victories. Well, and the weapons on Atlanta side, I mean, if if you can lock down Kyle Pitts, then there's not much else um, uh, to worry about. So I think that'll be the the goal. And, you know, Matt Ryan has certainly been up and down this year without Calvin Ridley, without Julio Jones. Obviously, that's (laughs) makes it hard even bringing in a weapon like Pitts. So I'm I'm optimistic about the Patriots. I think it could be a low-scoring game. It could be a you know, 21 to seven, 20 to 10 kind of game. But I, I feel the Patriots are in a good position to win anyway. Yeah, I, I, I think those numbers are good. So take them Vegas, put your yeah. money down. <laughs> Football and, and baseball were pretty reliable. I don't, you know, we'll see about basketball. We've got some skeptics on that. Hockey, you know, you do well last year. So um, we, we've had our ups and downs as well, some other sports. But uh, speaking of football, of course, fantasy football, we mentioned our, our big matchup last week. Uh, the Publius Posse, my team, took down the Canyon Lake Texans. Um, thanks to a little gamesmanship on my part, I have to admit. Uh, you know, you had a, a running back on a bye. And, and so I picked up Ramondre Stevenson last minute, knowing that you would probably grab him if I didn't. I just put him on the bench, but it, it, it worked because the guy you got 
ended up getting a lot fewer points than Stevenson. So had you had Stevenson, you would have won. So, you know, uh, sometimes the, the time zone helps. <laughs> I think I, sure. I, I got up early and I, I hit the, the waiver wire and I was able to get that move. Well, that, this has been your fantasy sport, right? I think you've won six out of seven years or something crazy like that. So, yeah, five hard, out of seven. Hard yeah. to beat the posse. Let's turn to Aristotle. We've got uh, the beginning of book four, chapters one and two to look at today. Why don't you lead us through that, Dave? Sure. So when we move to book four, Aristotle Aristotle introduces the subject of how to approach regimes. I'm going to say that there are really four ways that you can approach the question of the best regime. You can either look for what is best, pure and simple. So what the absolute best regime would look like, the absolute best form of government. Or you could secondly look at, in practical terms, what you could attain, uh, what you have to work with and, and what best attainable government is. Then thirdly, what would be a good government for most? So what would be a a comprehensive definition of what a good regime or form of government is? Uh, And then he takes fourthly into case uh, the circumstances of of different regimes, of of people with different faiths or or different economies. So uh, what is the regime that best suits the people living there or their past laws, et cetera? So I think one of the great things about Aristotle here is he's really kind of accounted for it all. And, and he uses, and I think this is a really helpful analogy, he uses uh, the example of a trainer, an athletic trainer. So if you were an athletic trainer, what would be the regimen, so regimen regime, uh, that you would give to the best athlete uh, so that you could have, I mean, 10 years ago, this might have been Michael Phelps, right? Or whoever that athlete is today. It's not LeBron James, but whoever it is. <laughs> but what would be that best regimen, you know, for that individual? But secondly, well, what's the best regimen in, in practical terms? Uh, and, and here, uh, it, I think the example, if we're going to work with athletic training, would be like a Tom Brady, right? That he's done the most to attain with his body, his diet, his exercise, the best he can be because he didn't come at this, you know, six, five, 230 pounds with a, you know, great muscle speed and all the rest. He worked to make his, his, his body kind of what it is and to produce the type of longevity that's present here. And then thirdly, what's a good regimen for, for all of us? What, 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 what should we all be doing? We'd have a certain diet, right. That was filled with fruits and vegetables that, you know, had protein there, but, uh, We'd exercise, we'd walk three miles a day. So there's a, there's a regimen that would be recommended for all. And then the regimen that would be recommended for, for you know, certain people relative to the circumstances. So the diet that you recommend to you know, a 14-year-old teenager who's growing may be very different than the diet that you recommend to a 62-year-old man. So uh, I, I love the, the use of, of athletic training. And I, and I love how um, it, it opens up the discussion of politics so that things aren't just simply cut and dry, black and white. It's, it has to be this. Aristotle's saying, well, no, it let, a serious view of the subject of politics requires you. Well, what would be the perfect thing? Uh, well, what, what could be attained? You know, uh, what should everyone have? And then how might I, as a statesman, apply my knowledge of regimes to improve that, that which is in front of me. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, it's, it's as you just mentioned, the statesman, right? So this is not just a philosopher's work that's meant for 
the, the academy. And, and so Aristotle gives you a way to translate this into practical action. I, you know, I think about the passage into Tocqueville where he says, the statesman's duty is to understand the nature of their regime and to understand its weaknesses so that you know when to encourage movement in one direction and when to discourage it. You know, I, which, which way, this is the image I've used before, is, is the house leaning. You know, every political house leans a certain direction. None of them are four square. And if you're in a democracy, you better know it leans in the direction of uh, too much equality and too much majority rule. And so you have to watch out for that. Right? You have to push back in the opposite direction. On the other hand, if you're in an aristocracy, it's just the opposite. And, and the rich are going to have too much influence. And so you need to think about that as you're framing policies, as you're thinking about you know, regime level decisions. So I think it's really practical help for for the statesman who wants to do more than just react to the latest polls or who's thinking more fundamentally than just winning the next election and yet isn't philosophical in sort of the 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 you know ivory tower sense right? but but wants to use this reflection to lead to action aristotle gives us a lot of useful insights and as well as a, a schematic, you know, a, a sort of an approach that we can take in applying these lessons and these principles to contemporary questions. This week, I, I went to D.C. on Friday to attend a memorial service for uh, our mentor, uh, Angela Cotavilla. And I was asked uh, to, to write something on, on his life. And, and when you describe Aristotle here, Matt, it, it sounds just like a, a Cotavilla teaching on the subject. So um, I spoke the following, when you have a conversation with Cotavilla, most of the time it followed the same progression. He'd want you to get to the point. He'd want you to ask what is required, given what we know, uh, figure out what you're up against and whether you have the means to do the right thing. And most importantly, realize that if your words and deeds do not correspond to reality, you won't be able to accomplish the right thing. And and he delivered this instruction in a, in a very hard way, but it's it's taking into account all, all this discussion here. Well, what, what would the best thing be, but, but what do you have at your disposal? Do you have the means to be able to achieve the ends that, that you like? What are some generally good means to do things? So his mind was very Aristotelian yeah. in how he approached um, all different types of regimes when he looked at foreign policy, but in particular, uh, the American regime. And I think when we interviewed him last in May, it was really interesting because he, he would give a clear-sighted view that, you know, here we are, you know, a, a series of podcast democracy in America today. But what if the regime is becoming oligarchic? What is necessary given that oligarchic tilting to go back to your house metaphor? Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I agree that was uh, just just the method that Dr. Cotavillo would apply. And of course, you know, in, in, the, in the book that probably has the closest uh, connection to that, the character of nations, he does that in, in a very modern way. I think the other point that I make here is that one of the things that we've seen, particularly in, in world history and political ideas over the last 150, 200 years, are a lot of modern attempts at some utopian solution. You know, if we just create a communist society, then all of our ills are going to go away. If we just grow our economy to the point where our GNP is up to 7% growth every year, then you know a lot of our problems are going to go away. So you have these utopian visions of what politics 
can look like. And, and then you have the anxiety and depression and dissolution that come from the fact that your plans never fit the utopian vision that you, um, uh, that, ha- that you had in the, in the first place. Well, and finally, the last thing I'd say on this, it, there was hope right at the end of the 20th century that we would reach the end of history that we wouldn't have to talk about regimes any longer, that yeah. uh, that really the dominant regime would be a form of um, Western liberal capitalism, where in the realm of ideas, philosophy, religion, we just agreed to disagree. Everything was indeterminate. And in the realm of material and production and economics, we just say, okay, the more the better, the more it's kind of brought together within a free market society, the better off that we'd be. So we, we trade a lot with one another and we don't argue with one another. End of story. A McDonald's on every block within 15, 20, 25 years. Uh, Hegel's dialectic uh, come to fruition. And that right, has, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that has not been um, the case. That, that was certainly not the case uh, shortly after uh, these predictions. Uh, we had 9 11. Uh, we still have uh, all of this. Um, challenge uh, in terms of ideas and all the rest. And, and I think that Aristotle's system accounts for that, whereas our uh, utopian dream has not. Great. All right. The second topic that Aristotle takes up, which is really interesting as well, is that he had referenced that there are these six regimes, uh, three that are, are true and three that are perverse. The three that are true are regime types, forms of government in which the office holders uh, care about the common interest or the common good. If that's one individual, we call that a kingship. If that's two, if that's two or, or few individuals, we call it an aristocracy. If it's the multitude who cares for the common good, we call it a polity. And then the perverse types of regimes are where the one, the few, and the many uh, simply hold office and rule in a way that is to their own advantage or benefit. Uh, and these types are tyranny, and then oligarchy, and then finally democracy. And Aristotle is going to say, well, they're just not six types of regimes. In fact, that within each of these types, archetypes, the tyranny, democracy, oligarchy, kingship, aristocracy, and polity, there are subtypes. And I, I think it opens up the discussion even further because you can think about, okay, this is a democracy that is functioning at 40%. What would it look like to make its functioning better? How could you make it a better democracy? Or here's an oligarchy that's gone in the wrong direction. Why is it gone in the wrong direction? So almost like a doctor looking at, you know, your health, right? You have different numbers on how you're doing. So your heart health may be this, but then you've got, you know, a different element. So it takes into account the variety of factors that go into uh, a well-functioning regime and a not-so-well-functioning regime, given the, um, given the particular types. Yeah, it's one of those things that I think we both used in class as a way of talking about the American regime over time. So, you know, you could say, well, we're, we're always in that category of, of polity or maybe democracy, depending on your assessment of the justice of the regime. Uh, but that's not very interesting. And it doesn't really account for some of the things that have happened over the course of time. And so if you think about you know, one few many as, as a continuum. So you have the, you know, the absolute rule of the one at one extreme, and you have, you know, the day-to-day rule of everybody at the other, regimes fall in between, right? We have a representative system. We have periodic elections. Uh, the people are very much involved, but they're not deciding the laws. 
And so where is that? Well, it's not all the way to the far side of that one few many continuum. It's, it's somewhere you know, toward maybe the aristocratic side because of the element of representation. And that could change over time as we have early in our history, uh, obviously the, the vote was much more severely restricted. You had to be a, a white male of property at first, and then it was uh, leave out the property requirement. And then it was um, some women, and, and then it was you know, no racial distinctions. And, and of course, all that developed over, over a period of years. And so you could think about on that one few many continuum, you're moving uh, toward a greater many. Uh, likewise, vertically, when you talk about, are you achieving the common good or the good of the leaders? Well, you know, most practical experiences, it's kind of a mix, isn't it? Uh, we have the perfect justice, just regime at the very top. So, well, that's you know, absolutely every measure is about the common good and justice, but we don't live in that. We're not going to live in that. that. That's not anything we're going to experience here on earth. Um, but on the other hand, uh, thankfully, uh, the worst extremes are, are rare. Maybe we've had some experience of that in the 20th century or, or pretty close, you know, in Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union or Pol Pot's Cambodia for uh, you know, the 1970s. But most places, even if they're not great, uh, even if they're, you say, below the line that separates the, the good from the bad, they're, they're less bad than that extreme. And we can talk about a regime moving in a positive direction or a negative direction. You know, one of the things I, I'm teaching my students right now as we go through the period of the Jacksonian era into the, the pre-Civil War period is that there's a decline in the justice of the American regime during this period, that the, the, the conceptions of, of justice that are, that are there at the time of the founding are, are being abandoned to a certain degree. There's an argument being made that, that slavery is good, uh, that, that becomes prominent and strong. There's other arguments that, that are relativizing uh, political matters and making the question of justice a, a matter of or personal judgment or determination. So you know, all that allows us to talk about a regime moving dynamically more toward the ideal or further away from the ideal. And I think Aristotle is really helpful on this point in helping us to see that while it's, it's useful to have that initial category, one of these six boxes, there's also something that happens within the history of a regime that moves it around a little bit, perhaps within a single box over the course of time. And as someone who wrote a dissertation about that topic. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's a long time ago. Third item that Aristotle brings up, also quite interesting given his predecessor, Plato, and uh, the great work, uh, Repub The Republic, Aristotle ranks the six major archetypes, and he does so in, in, an, in a more, I guess what you'd say, balanced way. He's going to say that the best regime is the rule of one for the common good. Kingship is the best regime. And then he's going to say the second best regime is where the few rule for the common good. And then he's going to come around and say the third best regime is when the many rule for the common good. But then here's what he does. He says the fourth best regime is when the many rule for their own interest. The snake so draft. Yeah, he does a snake draft. Exactly. So he, <laughs> he comes around and he says, we're going to get to the point where democracy is better. The rule of the many for the interest of the many is better than the rule of the few oligarchy for the interest of the few. And the worst type of regime is tyranny. The rule of the one for the interest of the one. So it's interesting that he does this, that he ranks regimes like this because what he's basically telling is he's reaffirming this idea that what is most central, right, is that the regime rule for the common good. 
But then he's undercutting the idea that it's just simply a matter of a number, right? That that makes the difference because, it, or, or he's going to say the one can do a whole bunch of good, but the one can be terrible. Or the few can do quite a bit of good, but they can be somewhat terrible. The many can do maybe not as good, but the harm they're going to do, right, is is probably less. And uh, it's just it's a different take on the one, the few, and the many than I think that were given in, uh, by Socrates in the Republic. Yeah, that's right. There's an important flip, in particular between democracy and oligarchy, right? So in, in Plato, oligarchy is preferable because oligarchy is, is closer to the knowledge of the good uh, or, or less f- far removed from that because democracy relativizes everything. And so it's only one step away from tyranny, which, which turns the good into the bad and the bad into the good. But, but here, I think Aristotle's got a different measure or metric here. And he's saying, well, well, how many people's good will be achieved? Well, it's better that it's the majority. Of course, best if it's everybody, right? But it's better that it's the majority than that it's only a, a, a minority, an oligarchy. And of course, it's worst of all if it's only one person, right? So, so the majority is wrong when it harms the minority, but it's, it's closer to the common good when the majority gets its way than when a small minority of, of oligarchs get their way or when a single tyrant is able to get his way. Yeah, well said, Matt. He, he ranks the degree to which the good is achieved for the greatest amount of people rather than ranking the types of love, when there's love of wisdom, right. uh, love of honor, love of wealth, love of freedom and equality, love of power. So it's an... It's a, um, important uh, pivot in this discussion. Yeah, and I think you might wonder, well, why is then the rule of the one better than the rule of the few, better than the rule of the many, if, if they're all aiming at the common good? And I think the answer there in Aristotle is that in order to actually achieve the good, you need both virtue and wisdom. And, and the wisdom available to the one wisest and most good is a more comprehensive wisdom than you would find in, in, a, in, a, in a group, a small group, and certainly more than you would find in the multitude, even if that multitude was aiming in the right direction, how often would they achieve that? It wouldn't be as, as high a rate of achievement, perhaps, as, as that single wisest person who was motivated to do the right thing. So I want to end this discussion by turning to an essay that I think is important uh, to both of us, written by Harry Jaffa, who was Angela Cotavilla's teacher at Claremont. And the essay is titled The American Founding as the Best Regime. So take what we've learned from Aristotle here in parts one and two of book four of the politics and interweave it with Jaffa's argument in this essay, just in broad terms, Matt. What what is Jaffa Jaffa saying here? Yeah, so I think what's interesting about it is just the title of the piece, right, shows there's, there's something going on in the American project that could be of deep philosophical significance. I use this idea at the beginning of my class on American political thought and practice. And I say, you know, there, there's big questions you've been asking when you've taken foundations of politics and you've, you've asked the question, what's the best regime? And there were Americans at the time of the founding that thought they'd actually answered that question. And, and they had a plausible claim to having answered that question. And, and if you take uh, the work of the Declaration of Independence, the ideas there, layer on top of that, the Constitution, the theory embedded within it, and, and really best expounded by the Federalist Papers. You put all that together, that kind of founding era thought, that that republic, Harry Jaffa's arguing, has some claim 
to being the best regime, the best the best practical regime, right? It's 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 not that um, you know city and speech for the individual philosopher that that's the the single best life, but what he does is he argues in essence that that the key challenge that emerges, especially with Christianity, is is the reconciliation of the claims of the city of man and the city of God and, and, and of politics and religion. And his argument is that, that the American founding uh, resolves that question in, 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 in the best way, um, insofar as it limits the role of politics without going the whole direction of the modern project and saying that, in essence, that limited role of politics is also reflective of the fact that our only purpose in life is just to live a long, comfortable life. Yeah, two, two great paragraphs in this essay. Um, so this is, this is Jaffa writing. As I have often written, the United States is the first nation in the world to declare its independence, not because of any particular qualities or merits of, an o- of its own, but because of rights which it, it shared with all men everywhere. In so doing, it declared the ground of, quote, government of the people, by the people, for the people, end quote, in a sense, absolutely unprecedented. In so doing, it laid an equally unprecedented claim to the character of the best regime of Western civilization. And then to your point, this latter claim cannot be understood in the light of the doctrine of the best regime as it is found, for example, in Plato and Aristotle. For them, the best regime was that of, quote, the examined life, end quote, as defined by Socratic skepticism. Moral virtue, although necessary for human happiness, did not represent in itself the highest of all possible ends. That was to be found in purely contemplative activity. Biblical religion, however, found not the examined life, but the life of obedient love of the living God to be the highest of all possible ends of human existence. Like classical philosophy, biblical religion finds that man's highest end transcends morality. For man's highest end, his relationship with God is a transmoral end. Biblical religion presupposes a living God whose existence is primarily and essentially a matter of faith. Whatever demonstrations, unassisted reasons might take of God's existence and attributes may complement or supplement the teachings of faith, but they can never supplant faith as the ground of of belief, a faith that Jaffa would argue is available to all. Yeah, and that's an important point that that then, you know, how does this come back to a government, right? And and so the, the, uh, the argument that that Jaffa makes is, is really similar to something you find in John Adams' thoughts on government. So he talks about happiness there in two dimensions. He talks about the happiness of society as being things like prosperity, things like a kind of a comfortable life, but the happiness of man as being virtue. And so you try to put those two things together and you say, well, how's he using happiness in two different ways? But it's two different categories. There's the job of government, which provides a context in which, to use the language of the declaration, you pursue happiness but that happiness is not entailed by the things the government provides. Having, having commodious living and, and, and the things that you need to kind of get by is, is a precondition, perhaps, for some elements of a happy life, although not all of them require that. But it's not the same thing as a happy life. And so one of the faults of the modern project has been to take out this other kind of happiness that, that's grounded um, not only in, in, in scripture, but also has connections back to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And, and to say, well, no, we're, we're happy if we have stuff, if our material needs are satisfied. And, and what the American founding 
was saying, according to, to Jaffa's interpretation, is that that's not enough. That, that this Christian ideal of virtue and ultimately finding one's highest end in, in God, uh, that, that is still the highest end. Um, but it's not an end that government will accomplish for us. Um, government isn't the instrument that leads us in that direction. Um, but government can provide a context where it's possible for us to pursue that ultimate happiness. We're going to wrap up the show with the Tocqueville's crystal ball. Uh, now we're just over the midpoint of the NFL season. And so it's always a little bit concerning, right, to go back and, and review your predictions at this stage. You know, we uh, made a prediction for every team, every record for every team, uh, playoffs all, all the way through the whole season, essentially. And so now it's time to have a little bit of a reckoning with, with how we've done so far. And actually, it's not been too bad. So you look at this, the seven teams that are in the playoffs right now, if it's the season ended today, uh, Dave, you got six of the seven in the AFC. Uh, I've got five of the seven. Uh, we won't read the whole list here, but, but what I'm going to do is give you a chance on the AFC side first to kind of a redo, right? You know, a team that maybe surprised you, that's, that's been a disappointment, or maybe on the positive side, done better than expected, and give you a chance to revise that prediction uh, moving forward. Yeah, well, I look at my list of division winners in the AFC Buffalo. I would, I would still go with um, Kansas city. looks like they're going to take their division now, probably not at 13 and four. Uh, I probably picked the Ravens over the Steelers. I think they're a more balanced team, uh, but then I think the Titans, uh, I think they have their division locked up and, and probably have a pretty good shot at a number one seed. So I wouldn't change any of those things. Uh, I, I still think the Patriots are on their way to a, a, a wild card uh, seating. I, I still think the chargers have probably uh, the most opportunity uh, to get in there as well. I, I guess of my seven teams, the the one I have the least faith in right now is the Steelers. Uh, I, I think that, um, but they they have a good defense, so that could that could get them in at the end of the day. But yeah, I like I like where I am in the AFC. I do think the Patriots are going to win a playoff game. I think that uh, they may may win two even. So I'm. I'm I'm happy as a Patriots fan that uh, my early prediction of them having a better year has come true. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I mean, you've done very, very well. And, you know, Kansas City is probably, as you say, not going to end up 13 and four. They have to win their last seven games, to pull that off. Um, Steelers are not going to be 13 and four either because they've got a tie with, yeah. with the Detroit Lions. So we, we know that they're not going to just have wins and losses looking over my list. I guess the one that I'm most disappointed with is the Browns. I had them down as 11 and six wild card team behind the Ravens. Uh, you know, right now they're five and five. That's, you know, that, that, that probably is about where they are. Um, so I think that's probably going to be a miss on my part. Bengals have been better than expected. Uh, I had the Steelers not doing well, and they've been maybe a little better than expected. That, that whole division has been a little topsy turvy, although you know, the Ravens looked like they're going to, land in first place as i had thought so you know i think again overall afc our, our picture looks pretty good nfc not quite as strong um, so i've got four out of the seven teams in my list of playoff teams that are currently in position for that you've got five out of seven let's do the same thing dave any any uh, redos that you want there fitz magic never worked for me i thought that he would somehow yeah get the Washington football team uh, into a higher ranking and he gets injured early and yeah, that hurt that, that situation's in disarray. I, I think my other uh, choice, uh, the Vikings, 
I still think that they can make the playoffs, but I had them ranked as a second seed, and I don't think that's going to happen. I think everyone's been surprised by the Cardinals. Um, I did have them in in the playoffs, so they have done well. I think that my my biggest takeaway is I I didn't think that there'd be as much disparity as as there is in the NFC. I thought that you'd have a lot of 10, 11, uh, 12 win teams and um, more balance, but it's really been the opposite. Um, you have really the a lot of the higher um, win teams in the NFC. I'm still, I'm not believing in the Packers. Maybe it's because I just don't want to. That's no hit upon um, your dad. Just, <laughs> he just, just got like stock, it. by the way. They just did yeah. a new release of stock this week, and he bought his first share of Packers stock. So he's a part owner of the team going forward. So you better watch what you say about that. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that I was, you know, I hosted a <laughs> podcast with Packers royalty. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It depends upon Aaron Rodgers, you know, mood and, you know, you know, what he wants to give in an ESPN interview day to day. I just don't I don't see them being strong. I, I actually think that um, I had the Cowboys in my list of seven to make it there. Uh, I think there's something going on there. Um, I, the Cowboys and Rams, to me, seem to be two teams that would probably make it to the championship if I had to had to pick now. And um, so we'll we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, I think the Bucks. It's always hard to have a, a good season after a Super Bowl, and I, I'm still of the mindset that that they that just won't happen. For me, the, the two big misses are the the Cardinals and the Cowboys, who right now are the second and third seeds. I didn't have them in the playoffs at all. Um, I had Washington football team winning that division. You know, thought it was still a relatively weak division, but Dak's come back, and, and Dallas's offense is rolling, and their defense is much improved. So, you know, good for them. And I'm sure there's a lot of excitement down your in, in your part of the country, Dave, over their performance. Uh, and, and Arizona as well, you know, eight and two, are they going to be uh, 13 and four by the end of the season? Uh, maybe not, but, you know, still a very strong team in a tough division. You know, they, they've held up well. If Kyler Murray is healthy, then I think there's a lot to be optimistic about there in Arizona. So those, those two big misses for me, you know, Seattle was the other team rooting for my mom's team up there in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it's not gone well. Some of that's obviously Russell Wilson injury, but it just seems like, you know, after a, a great run, that, that team needs a refresh and it may just be you know, part of that normal cycle. It's just maybe kicked in a year earlier than we might have anticipated and uh, just going to be kind of a struggle to the finish. Some high draft picks and, you know, they'll probably reload out there. They still have some talent, but I think it's, it's probably not going to finish well for, for the Seahawks. Maybe Mrs. Parks needs to buy an ownership stake in the Seahawks or something like that. You know. Yeah, and, yeah. If that was available, maybe that would help. Yeah, yeah that, that'd make for quite a. Well, they had their game last week, right? The, That's the right. Mom and Dad. Yeah. So. That's right. Yeah, they 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 weren't going to watch it until after it was over, and then whoever team won was going to enjoy it. And the other one was going to read a book. So nice. I like it. I like yeah. it. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget you can contact us at democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. Look forward to talking to you real soon. 2020 vision.